We're in a short series on the book of Job entitled, When Bad Things Happen. The reality of life in our world is that we will suffer. A professor of mine once said, if you live long enough, you'll suffer. And uh, in reality, that might be in the year to come. So uh, wise men in my past have said that the best way to learn to handle suffering is to prepare for it before it happens. Because once you're in it, it can be a challenge. So that's what we're doing as we look at this topic, as we look at uh, the texts in, uh, in the book of Job. Now, when you suffer, one of the things you're likely to do is seek counseling. That might be with a professional counselor. More, than, more likely than not, it's going to be with friends or family who are in your circle. And one of the things that you're doing when you go to them, when you rely on them, is that you're looking for comfort from them in the midst of your suffering. So from today's text from the book of Job, we're going to look at three counseling models. Three counseling models. And each one of them will teach us something about how to give and not give comfort to somebody who's facing suffering. So here's, here are the three models we're going to look at. We're going to look at really bad counsel, good counsel, and the best counsel. Really bad counsel, good counsel, the best counsel. First, Really bad counsel. Now, after living through this incredible loss, uh, Job does what many of us do in our suffering. He turns to his friends. We do that in our pain. We turn to our friends, our inner circle. Job does the same thing. From chapter 4 all the way through 31, there's a pattern in the book of Job where one of Job's friends speaks into his situation, and Job responds, and this goes on and on and on for this, this bulk of uh, the text. And uh, uh, quite frankly, every one of them does a terrible job weighing in on his situation. In fact, at one point in chapter 16, Job turns to them and says to them, miserable comforters you all are. Miserable comforters you all are. So what is this really bad counsel they offer? And why does Job think these guys are miserable comforters? Well, Each of their perspectives on Job's situation is summarized in just a couple of verses. So we're going to look at these. Eliphaz is the first one to speak up. And in chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, this is what he says. Consider now, who, being innocent, has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. In other words, Job... You reap what you sow. Job, what in the world did you do? What did you do? That's Eliphaz's perspective on it. Bildad is the next one. Chapter 8, verse 4, he says, When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. Job, your children are dead because they must have done something heinous, something terrible. Zophar is the last one. Chapter 11, verses 14 and 15. If you put away the sin that is in your hand and allow no evil to dwell in your tent, then free of fault, you will lift up your face. Zophar is like a a merciless interrogator trying to coerce a confession out of an innocent man. Job, where were you on the night of? Job, what did you do? Job, blah, 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 blah. The light's in his face. It's relentless. It is relentless, and it is really bad counsel. Now, why is it really bad counsel? This is where the help comes for us, I think, as we approach trying to give comfort to those in our lives who are suffering. Why is this really bad counsel? There are two reasons why this is really bad counsel. The first is that the friend's view of suffering is incomplete. It's an incomplete 
view of suffering. It's a partial truth, but it's incomplete. The only category Job's friends have for suffering is you reap what you sow. It's the only category they have for suffering. Job, you've got some really bad stuff going on in your life. You must have done something to bring this upon yourself. Your children uh, had, had experienced catastrophic consequences of something they had done. You reap what you sow. This is the category they have for human suffering. Now, it is true. We need to give the friends partial credit for this. You reap what you sow is a biblical principle. Sometimes suffering is caused by sin. Let me give you some examples. John chapter 5, Jesus heals a paralytic, and after healing him, says to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. So Jesus ties this man's paralysis and the accompanying suffering directly to his sin. In this case, you reap what you sow is true. When Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he tells them flat out that some of them have become sick or weak and even died because they participated in the Lord's Supper in a dishonorable way. He writes in 1 Corinthians 11, starting verse 27, So anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. That is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread. And drinking the cup. For if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. That is why many of you are weak and sick, and some have even died. You reap what you sow. This is true. But it's not the only reason for suffering. Job's friends think this is the only reason for suffering, but the scripture has a more nuanced approach to it than that. Not only do we see it in Job himself, Job is not suffering because of something he did, that the book bears that out. We see that climactically demonstrated in Jesus Christ, but we also have other examples of that. John chapter 9, as Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So the disciples have a view of suffering very similar to Job's friends. You reap what you sow. Look at what Jesus says. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. The blind man's suffering is not caused by sin. You reap what you sow does not hold true in this case. So one of the reasons Job's friend's counsel is really bad is that they have an incomplete view of human suffering. And because they have an incomplete view of suffering, they have an arrogance about why Job is suffering. This is one of the reasons why their counsel is really bad counsel. But there's a second reason. Second reason this is really bad counsel is that they have an incomplete view of human need. They have an incomplete view of human need. It's not just their content that's wrong. Their tactics are wrong. Job's friends see this predicament as purely a moral and spiritual problem. Therefore, the tactic they employ is to be a moral and spiritual tactic alone. It's single-dimensional. They don't understand the complexity of the human being. That is, we're not just moral and spiritual creatures. We are physical and emotional creatures, and if we're going to give comfort to people who are hurting, we have to include all of that into the way in which we give comfort. So because Job's friends see this as a moral and spiritual problem only, they think what Job needs is a sermon. 
a podcast, a blog, an article, content, theological content, biblical content, and that's all, they, that's all he needs. Because they have an incomplete view of human need, they see this as a purely moral and spiritual problem, therefore the solution must be just moral and spiritual. They don't take into consideration that human beings are more complex than that. We are emotional creatures. We are physical creatures. In order to give good comfort to somebody, we might have to take that into consideration. I, I've talked about this passage before here, but First Kings 19 is a passage that I think every one of us needs to wrestle with. Um, this, the, the context for it is Elijah has just come off this contestation with the prophets of Baal, and he's running for his life because Jezebel wants his head on a platter. So he runs out into the, the wilderness, he collapses under a big bush, and he's crying out to God to take his life. He's depressed, he's suicidal. He falls asleep under this bush. God sends an angel. What do you think the angel's going to do? We might think, well, the angel's gonna deliver a word from God to him about the, what's going on and, and, and what he needs to do in response to it. But the angel doesn't. God sends the angel to cook Elijah a meal. Cooks him a meal, wakes him up, says, Elijah, eat. Elijah eats, he falls back asleep. God sends an angel a second time. Maybe this time it's going to be the sermon. Nope, it's a meal. The angel cooks him another meal, taps him on the shoulder, wakes him up. Text says, Elijah ate, he drank, and he felt refreshed. That was the only purpose of the angel. Because we are more than just moral and spiritual creatures. We are physical and emotional creatures, which means sometimes in our pain, what we need most is a nap and a meal. Maybe a walk on the beach or a friend to come over and give you a hug or someone to laugh with. We are more than mere moral and spiritual creatures. We are physical and emotional creatures. One of the reasons Job's friends' counsel is really bad counsel is not just that their content is lacking, but their tactic is single-dimensional. It's taking into consideration only the, the, the moral and spiritual side of us and ignoring the physical and emotional side of us. That's the really bad counsel. Let's look secondly at the good counsel. So Job's friends try to counsel him. They do a terrible job. Miserable comforters, you all are. But Job in his pain does something we need to do in our pain. He does some self-counseling. He does some self-counseling. And actually, the self-counseling he does is, is good counseling. Let's look at four aspects to why this is good self-counsel. First, it's good self-counsel because it's emotionally real. It's emotionally real. Take a look at chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. Then Job replied, if only my anguish could be weighed and all my misery be placed on the scales, it would surely outweigh the sands of the sea. No wonder my words have been impetuous. The arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks in their poison. God's terrors are marshaled against me. Look at these words. Look at these words. Imagine approaching somebody in the lobby on a Sunday and you ask them how they're doing and they say, the arrows of the Almighty are in me. 
My spirit drinks in their poison. God's terrors are marshaled against me. You ready for that response? Are you ready for that response? No. He's, he is emotional, and keep in mind, he's emotionally honest in the presence of his friends. This is not in seclusion here. He's not by himself. I mean, I could imagine myself saying something like this, but not around you all. I'd be in my room by myself. No, he's in the presence and the company of his friends. And God never rebukes him for it. He never rebukes him for his, the anguish he expresses um, being a part of his soul. So he is, like we are more than, than um, spiritual and moral beings, we are also physical and emotional, which means we respond to suffering in, in physical and emotional ways. One of the reasons Job's self-counsel is so good is that he doesn't fake it. He doesn't stuff it. He doesn't pretend he's doing better than he really is. And it would be my hope and prayer for the, the global body of Christ that wherever we gather, we make it safe for people to be emotionally real. You make it safe for them. So if you really do ask someone how they're doing, you who've been asked feel a freedom to speak the truth rather than fake it and put on a facade. You who've asked the question are ready for any response, even if it's a response of one like God's terrors are marshaled against me. This needs to be a safe place for people to be emotionally real about their pain. This is the first reason Job's self-counsel is good. Second reason Job's self-counsel is, is good counsel is that he remains humbly prayerful. He remains humbly prayerful. Throughout the, the, this major section of text from 4 to 31, when Job speaks, it becomes apparent he's not just responding to his friends. At moments, you get the sense that he's talking to God. But he's talking to God and referring to God in the third person as he does it. In other words, he's praying to God. He's praying to God, but he, he's not addressing God directly. He's using the third person as he prays to God. Now, Hebrew scholars have noticed this and think that this is significant, the fact that Job is praying to God but using the third person is telling you something about Job's posture before God in the midst of his suffering. So, for example, if we lived in a, in a monarchy um, and uh, you were summoned to appear before the king, you might appear before the king and say, what does the king desire of me? Now, you're talking directly to the king, but you're responding in the third person as a way of showing respect, reverence. Right? There is, there is a tiered structure here. The king is superior to me. The fact that, that Job retains this posture and refers to God in the middle of this prayer in the third person suggests he is still maintaining a posture of humility before God. He still regards God as superior to him. Now, why is that significant? Um, remember to last week. Remember what Satan thinks about us. Satan thinks the only reason we love and follow God is if there are benefits attached to it. Uh, we love and we follow God only because there are blessings attached to it. Satan thinks that if God was to remove the benefits and blessings in our lives, that, that our praises of God would turn into cursing of God. So Job's response is, is undermining Satan's premise. 
Let me explain why. When you praise something, you elevate it above yourself. When you see or hear a great musical performance, you clap, you applaud, you give it a, a standing ovation. You're acknowledging it as above you. You're recognizing a tiered structure of superiority. Curses go in the opposite direction. So a praise of God would say, God, who am I to question you? Curses go the other direction say, God, who are you to do this to me? Because Job is retaining a humble posture of prayer and still regarding God as superior, he has not switched places with God. He is not taking the perspective that says, God, who are you to do this to me? His humble posture of prayer still recognizes God as superior, as elevated above him. And in responding to suffering this way, Job is undermining Satan's premise. He's undermining Satan's premise. Even in the midst of his suffering, Job is saying, God, who am I to question you? Who am I to question you? His heart posture has not flipped where he's looking at God and saying, God, who are you to do this to me? This is good self-counsel. He remains humbly prayerful. Third, third, he rejects suicide. He rejects suicide. Job chapter 6, verses 8 and 9, Oh, that I might have my request, that God would grant what I hope for, that God would be willing to crush me, to let loose his hand and cut off my life. He's down in the dumps. He's really hurting. Both Elijah and Job are depressed and suicidal. They're both that down in the dumps. But both of them reject suicide as a viable means of coping with the pain. They both leave the timing of their last breath in God's hands. And the reason I, I make this observation about the book of Job uh, is that if the statistics are right, then 15% of us in this room have considered suicide as a viable option for coping with the pain. And so we need God to speak into this. We need God to speak into this. I know my wife has lived through this um, in a very personal way. Um, her oldest brother killed himself a couple of years ago. And we wrestled with this and processed this. And so it's good for us to just pause and, and make note of the fact that even though Job is about as depressed as they come, and for good reason, uh, even though he wishes God would take his life, he leaves the timing of that in God's hands. He doesn't take matters into his own hands. And it's good self-counsel. What God has to say to Job and his posture towards Job at the end of the book indicates this was a good move that he made. So he rejects suicide as a viable option for coping with the pain. Lastly, he undergoes self-examination. Job chapter 6, verse 10, then I would still have this consolation, my joy and unrelenting pain, that I had not denied the words of the Holy One. You see the introspection Job is undertaking in the midst of his pain. He wants to know, have I denied the words of the Holy One in any way? So he's probing deep. Chapter 7, verses 20 and 21, if I have sinned, what have I done to you? You who sees everything we do. Why have you made me your target? Have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my offenses and forgive my sins? For I will soon lie down in the dust. You will search for me, but I will be no more. 
So suffering affords us an opportunity to ask ourselves a question. How are things between God and me? How are things between God and me? Job is reflecting on his life. He's reflecting on his life where he may have made missteps, where he's had spiritual victories. And he's inviting God to read him like an open book. He's inviting God to do an audit on him. Think of it this way. When, you, when you're in intense physical pain, uh, one of the things you'll probably do is seek out a professional to help figure out what, what's causing this pain, right? You invite the professional in to, to do an examination of you. We should do that in our spiritual and emotional pain as well. Invite an expert in to do an examination on you. This is what Job is doing. He's not asking a pastor to do it. He's asking God to do it. Inviting God in. Do an examination of me. Do an examination of me. Have I made a misstep? Where have I been victorious spiritually? What do I need to repent of? So it's good self-counsel because he undergoes self Examination. It's good self-counsel. He's emotionally real. He's humbly prayerful. He rejects suicide. And he undergoes self-examination. Lastly, let's look at the best counsel. Let's look at the best counsel. There's a place in the Lord of the Rings trilogy where Sam Gamgee famously uh, turns to Gandalf and says, is everything sad going to come untrue? Is everything sad going to come untrue? Are you able in the middle of your suffering to say, yes, everything sad is going to come untrue? How do you know? How do you know everything sad is going to come untrue? This is where we have a resource Job didn't have. We have the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Imagine living through what Job lived through without that. What would that be like? In reflecting on suffering and the implications of the cross and resurrection for it, the Apostle Paul wrote this. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Are you convinced that the suffering you're experiencing now has not and will not separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? On the cross, Jesus was separated from the love of God. The Father turned his back on his Son. And Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He abandoned his Son in the midst of his suffering so that even in your worst suffering, you can have the assurance that God will never do that to you. This is what the Apostle Paul is saying. Because of what Jesus has done, he has taken the worst suffering imaginable off the table. That will never be anything we who are in Christ have to experience. 
So while there may be many mysteries to your suffering, there's one thing that's not a mystery in your suffering. It's the haunting question we all ask when we're going through the thick of it. Does God still love me? And when we, with our tears rolling down our faces, look to the Father with that question, he points to his Son. And he says, what do you think? I have a friend named Chuck who uh, is a commercial airline pilot for U.S. Airways and I have a moderate fascination with flying and airplanes and so whenever we'd get together, uh, I would ask him, I have my list of questions for him about flying. He has his list of questions about theology and stuff and, and so we'd have a great time but, but uh, uh, one of the questions I remember asking him early on was, was so... Chuck, when you're flying these planes, which alone just seems a little off to me that we do that, but, but when you're flying these planes, uh, how, how do you do this at night? All right, I'm, I'm a non-pilot, all right? I'm, a non-pilot. I'm looking at this thinking, this is nuts, this is crazy, why are you doing it? I mean, this... So I said, I said, well, how do you fly these things at night or when the visibility is really bad? And uh, he said, you have to trust your instruments. There's no other, no other way around it. You have to trust your instruments. And, uh, and he said, novice pilots who are early in their training, he says, sometimes this is the biggest hurdle for them to get, get across as they train to fly. Because their, their natural gut knee flex reaction flying the plane is to fly by feel, to feel the plane, to feel the air. He says, but, but that is, is not always reliable. And he, of course, he's got, he's got stories of where they... Pilots thought this was reliable and it didn't turn out so well for them. Flying by field does not always turn out well. He says, in fact, some of the hardest things is, is when you're feeling the plane, you're feeling the air, and your instruments are telling you something very different than what you feel. He says, sometimes that's really hard for, for beginner pilots to get over. They have to disregard in that moment how they, what they think the plane is doing based on feel and instead trust the instruments that are in front of them. Journeying through suffering is like flying in poor visibility conditions. It's like flying at night. In that moment, what you feel and what your instruments are telling you may be two different things. And in that moment, if you trust how you feel, it may lead to devastating consequences. Instead, you have to trust your instruments. Even if what you feel is different than what your instruments are telling you. And you know what one of the instruments is saying to you in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your suffering? One of the instruments is communicating to you this message. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
when you're flying through suffering, trust your instruments. Trust your instruments. That's the best counsel. Let's pray. Gracious and good Father, I am so thankful that we live on this side of the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In our pain, as the tears roll down our faces and we look up to you asking why, you can point to your son and reassure us time and again of your love for us. I pray, Lord, you would keep us humbly prayerful in the midst of our pain. And that even when what we feel and what our instruments are telling us are different things, we would go back again and again to the gospel of Jesus Christ and through it be reassured of your love for us that is never failing and unending. We ask these things for your glory and our good. Amen. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. God's people said, Amen. Amen.